Welcome to the Who I Became podcast. Well, on this episode of Who I Became, I'm talking to Mike Scully, and welcome, firstly, Mike. Thank you, Simon. I appreciate the uh, the opportunity to be on. I've really uh, enjoyed this series uh, since it started. I've definitely made a point to catch each one, maybe not on the premiere, but uh, I've really enjoyed the the backstory and getting to know a lot of the folks that you've had in the hot seat, so to speak, um, and uh, getting to know really more about who they became. Well, Mike, flattery gets you everywhere. So you've, you've, James, Mr. James McGarvey must have told you I like it. And I said, we must start off by saying, you know, you are one third of the church safety guys. So I've now hit all of you for who I became. So really excited to, to be talking to you today. And there's some, there's some interesting things in your background that I, I didn't know um, before sort of doing research over the last couple of days. But I want to sort of lay a little bit of a foundation about, you know, who you are um, day job, because in quite often in security ministry, which is where you spend a lot of your time people don't do that full time you know there's, there's a day job behind there so you are a operations and communications strategist for one of the country's largest technology companies i'll let you determine if you say who that is or not i kept that out there for you i was as i mentioned you are one third of the church safety guys with james mcgarvey and paul buckner uh, you you host the largest church safety group on facebook and i'm honored and privileged that you allow me to come on every now and again and, and try and share what i consider wisdom. I don't know what your, your listeners say, but that's, that's what I say. And then you were, you were born and raised in Milwaukee, so not too far from where I am here in Minnesota, but you, you now live in Texas. And I know we're, we're definitely going to cover um, how the Lord took you to Texas during this um, conversation, but you've got the two extremes there. You went from Milwaukee growing up to, to living in Texas. So, you know, we, we might have to talk about how you actually do that. <laughs> sure. Yeah, it's really interesting. And and we do appreciate having you on, Simon, as well. Uh, it's it's always a good conversation. And, and uh, I think it's a, a lot of fun, even if uh, even if my uh, cohorts uh, butcher your name from time to time. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, the name Osamo, it's not the easiest name to say. So I always give people that. But but I love you, your guys' show, you know, it's all in, it's all in Thank you. fun. And, and the one thing that I really enjoy about not only you three as individuals, but also your show it is very Christ-led. You know, it is, um, you know, you consider um, security in a church to be ministry, you know, and I'm always blessed to be be involved in that. But, um, you know, Mike, so thank you for being on. And there's been a couple of big um, things that have happened in your life that have really sort of shaped your, your journey. And like I said, you know, uh, with who I became, I really like it because there's people that you talk to or you sort of, you might see or just, you know, um, see them on these different podcasts, but you don't really understand the journeys they've gone. And there's been two big events that have shaped your life. Uh, and one of them I only found out recently about you in the last um, couple of um, couple of weeks. And the first one was that you were diagnosed with a growth hormone um, deficiency as a child. Uh, and you're only expected to, to sort of get to five foot two. Now, I know you're a lot taller than that now. You, you, you reach five foot nine. But tell us a bit about that chapter in your life, you know, how old you were and, and how that came about. Sure, Simon. Well, I, I was, uh, I want to say about seven years old, if I recall correctly. And, and I, I really had gone through a period of, of being unusually small for my age compared to all of my peers. And that honestly led to uh, really kind of a, 
season of bullying um, where other kids would take advantage. And obviously, I think many of us may have at least one experience where something uh, was done to us in school. But uh, this was something that that was severe and prolonged to the point where I left the school and the, the person who did that bullying today is actually behind bars, um, not for that purpose, but ultimately that was there. So the growth hormone was really kind of something where they were, my parents were trying to understand well, why, why am I uh, shorter than everybody else and why am I not growing as fast as anybody else? And in those days, they basically looked at it and kind of charted it and looked at how the growth is continuing. And essentially they called it by percentile. And so what they realized is that I essentially almost plateaued. And while everybody else in my age was continuing to kind of grow or follow the curve of their percentile, I kind of started to to taper off um, and ultimately started to drop off in percentile um, over time. So that led to a series of testing. And that's when they identified it as growth hormone deficiency, which is basically um, a fancy way of saying that the body is not producing enough uh, traffic signals to tell the body to grow properly, to do what it needs to do to institute growth. Um, and so that was a series of tests and a lot of uh, really a foundational reason why I probably hate hospitals to this day. Um, and uh, while I would be uh, fine confronting lots of different things, uh, still scared of needles. So it, that's one of those weird things. But from that point, um, that's really what happened. And so they prescribed um, a treatment, which at the time was experimental. Um, prior to that point, anybody who essentially was diagnosed with a similar uh, condition was treated with the um, basically uh, ground up, uh, pieces of ground up pituitary glands from cadavers was what it was prior to this treatment that was then created. So this was the first synthetic treatment that ultimately I was prescribed. We had to fight insurance companies because it led to um, medical bills that were at the time $600,000 a year. Um, and certainly that was not something that we had to pay um, at all but because of insurance, but it required taking them to court in order to get them to cover it because it was um, – outside the normal at that point. Yeah. And so, you know, I mentioned that, you know, now you're, you're five foot nine. So I guess you're actually same, same height as me. So it's really good to see that, you know, the, the drugs that you're taking, that experimental, um, uh, you know, drugs at the time, you know, it seemed to have really, really worked. And I just want to dive into something that you sort of said there. So this was around six or seven when this was really discovered, Mike. Okay. So Correct. how, what, what was that sort of difference between you and your peers? Obviously you're in a lower percentile and your friends are growing and getting more advanced. I mean, um, how much of a difference was there? In sort of I mean, at the time, I mean, when you're talking um, pre-grade school and kindergarten and things like that, as you're reaching that point, as it um, started to draw that contrast, I mean, it was six, eight inches shorter. Um, it was smaller for my size. I think part of the diagnosis was ultimately that they determined that my bones were essentially a younger age than my, than I physically was per my birth certificate. So while I was seven or eight at the time when they did that test, I, I still had kind of the bones of a five-year-old. And so they they realized that that's really what, what kind of was happening was this delta between the two um, is how they helped to kind of notice that. But 
it, I was the shortest one. So, I mean, if you sat there and you're, you're, you're picking kids for the sports ball games, um, I was last to get picked because I was the smallest kid. Now that didn't stop me from going on to play football once I got bigger, but at the same point, it, it still was one of those things that it created an environment of challenge because every day was through that lens of, well, he's not adequate. He's not good enough. He's not this. He's not that just because of my size. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, in the tense that you use, that, you know, he's not adequate, you know, he's not big enough. Uh, I'm going to sort of dive in a little bit. You know, I mean, how, how are you feeling at that, that, that age when you're either being picked last for sports or you're seeing your friends, you know, go off and do the things perhaps you want to do and, and you're not, not being included? I mean, we'll, we'll touch on the bullying in a little, little bit, but how are you internally processing a lot of this, Mike? I think as as a child, I it felt like there was a lot coming at me, and and certainly at that age, um, we really don't have a whole lot of coping mechanisms or resilience built up at that point, and I, I think that may be part of what the interest in in resilience and and readiness and training and other sorts of things led to later in life, but uh, certainly the passion for it. Um, but I, th I think it was really not seeing an end or a light at the end of the tunnel. It was, it, this is my life. This is going to be who I am, what I am doing, what I can be, because I'm limited based on my size. And leading into um, kind of the, the, the picking on and the bullying and so forth, that escalated from basic just banter and childish games into physical, physical attacks and threats and, and, and so forth at that point. And that's really where it, it, it was really cornering and feeling like I just didn't have a way out. Yeah. And I know, um, you know, you'd mentioned that one person that bullied you was sort of, you know, is now, now in prison, I guess, you know, how do you, how do you know that Mike? How do you know that person's in prison? So ultimately, um, after leaving the school, um, we wrote the board of a, this was a private Christian school and we wrote the board, uh, my parents did ultimately, uh, to explain what led to our reasons for having to leave the school. And a lot of it was the unwillingness of that administrator really to address the situation. And so part of it was explaining that and kind of doing that. We got to know more about who the person was really at that point they they the administrator shared a little bit more about the the fatherless home the different sorts of scenario which to me honestly just felt like excuses in the day but in with a modern the modern day capability i, I didn't forget his name he, he certainly yeah. left a mark um in in more ways than one so it, it was something where i was able to later in life be able to uh search for that individual and realize kind of the path that he chose was uh um, ultimately led to where he is today yeah, and I guess what I'm hearing, uh, Mike, and I guess what our the listeners will be hearing is that you know, you you stand in front of me uh, a lot a lot older than that seven year old boy, but you know you you've got over it and moved past it, but there's still a piece of you which is back there, you know, and and mainly I was going on to the fact that you know you you know who this guy is and you, you sort of still research and and so I mean is that something that you feel what you can um, let go of? Is is that a fair assessment or is it? Is it Absolutely. I think that, I mean, that comes in more into, I think, who who I'm, I am today versus where I was. I, I think only recently God has created that stronger call and challenge 
to really embrace the forgiveness aspect um, and not just to forgive those who kind of have done things against me in life, but really to go beyond that and pray for them uh, and not just pray for them to stop what they're doing if it's current, but to pray blessing over their life To because uh, certainly we know that hurt people hurt people. And I think at the end of the day, if, if we really want to have them stop hurting people, we need their life to change and there's nothing that God cannot do. So if we pray blessings into their life, perhaps that will be enough to have God move supernaturally to cause that change. Yeah, that transformation, we, we know transformation has to come from within and, you know, no matter what it looks like for each individual, everyone reaches it in their own time. So, you know, perhaps we hope and we pray that that person, if he's in prison now, that he will be transformed at some point and, and become a better person. Um, Amen. Focusing on, you know, you taking this um, medical drug, and I know that you, you dubbed yourself the 600000 It's like I said, the million-dollar man. You know, you're like yeah. the $600,000 kid. I mean, I don't know if your parents called you that with all the medical bills. I mean, here in the US, it's still out of pocket, but it's it's good to be called that. But at what age did you start catching up then? See, when you started taking this medication, and when did you sort of plateau out and become like like your sort of peers and friends? Ultimately, in uh, through teenage years, it was still ultimately, I'd say, growth cycle for me was was delayed. Uh, the treatment essentially, think of it this way, it was acting as the traffic signal in my brain. So the medication was allowing my brain to send the signals it then de- needed to do to then get out of its own way or do what it needed to do. Um, that's that's kind of the the dumbed down version of it, but. Um, Doing so that kind of over time kind of helped get me back to on track with bone age, on track with with growth and sl- and stop that plateau or decline in um, overall per- height, uh, percentile of height and, and kind of reclimb. So I wouldn't say that I fully um, felt the difference or acknowledged the difference until towards the end of my treatment, which was into high school. Yeah. And so what you, I mean, we sort of touched on it uh, a little bit, but, you know, when you look at that period of time from, you know, as much as almost a blessing to actually realize that, you know, there is something wrong with you that can actually be treated or there's this new medical, um, um, you know, um, source that you can take, but then it sounds like there was a legal battle with the insurance and, you know, I, God bless America. I've been here eight years, but I know the, the health system here is is it's quite messy, um, to, to say the least. So let's just leave sure. that conversation there. But there's obviously a lot legal battle there. But well, you know, what do you look back and say? What was the most challenging about that that period of your life? Um, I think honestly, the uh, one of the challenges that didn't kind of rear itself in the moment, but I think looking at it was was more the impact on others than necessarily directly me. And I, I say that in the sense that the impact on others is the 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 perception of attention that I was getting. It was all medical and it was treatment and it was all this really focus on getting me to be five nine, getting me out of that five two prediction, um, which was life-changing really in that sense. But I think the impact on, on others, and I think there, there, there was an impact on siblings in that sense of saying, hey, uh, you know, Mike's probably getting more attention than we are. Um, even though in my mind, that wasn't good attention going through yeah. it. Not attention um, you really I, wanted. Exactly. I mean, I, I appreciate what my parents did. I appreciate what the the what happened as a result of being on that treatment and kind of suffering through the 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 different layers of 
treatments and tests and, and hospitals and things like that um, to come out the other side. But again, God had a plan. He moved on that plan and, and ultimately delivered. Yeah, now over time, I'm guess if you know, you're, you're a youngster and then you sort of moved into high school and you finished sort of a lot of this treatment. Uh, were, you, were you sort of a faith follower at that point as you sort of turned your life over to God or were you just sort of learning um, who he was? Well, I'd say, I mean, I was raised in the church. Um, uh, my parents have, a, I think, one of the best things they ever did for me was model that example of uh, being good Christians, of being a good married couple. Uh, certainly huge shoes to fill on both accounts. Um, and I think that 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 helped kind of uh, project where I wanted to be to kind of follow in those footsteps. So I think that was, that was definitely part of it. Um, I served from a young age in many cases uh, i was in a catholic church for for many many years and was one of the first to to be an altar server uh was one of the youngest to become a eucharistic minister um and then was one of the youngest to to lead music as a cantor in the catholic church so it, serving was always part of that walk i was always felt like there was some level of uh, a call to serve um, even from a young age and being part of that church was, was important. I mean, my parents instilled that, I think, even as an infant, they, they placed me in my, my child carrier on the stage of prayer meetings that were ecumenical. And literally, I, I think I absorbed the worship music as a child, as an infant. And I think that kind of uh, carried through from that point forward, but always part of the church, really always there, certainly not without bumps and bruises at times, or even um, I think some people call it sunburn um, and, and feeling of, of different points. But I found more and more that it was less over my faith and more the lack of faith in other people at times. And it was the, the burning of relationships and people, not really the faith in God. But the faith in God has really kind of risen and grown um, throughout my life, I'd say up to and including, though, before the move to Texas. Um, and I know we'll talk about that, but I think I was probably at a low point. Um, not, not certainly at a point where I was saying, uh, who are you God or, or wanting to walk away, but more just, I think in a point of, uh, uh, maybe in the desert, if you will, um, a period of time where it just felt like, okay, where's this journey going? What, what's next Lord? Um, what do you have in store for me? And really not being all in and, and God decided to then move in a big way. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, we sort of, you know, we, we always believe that God doesn't give us more than what we can handle, but some people have more traumatic lives than other, you know. And I guess yeah, if we move on to a second sort of significant event in your life, is that, you know, you got married in 2011, you know, which is a, a very happy uh, occasion. But, but two weeks after your uh, marriage, you then found out that you had a, a brain tumor. So there must have been more emotions, you know, you, you've taken on something which is so traumatic as a sort of a growth um, hormone um, deficiency you know you've come through that you know you're you're, you're the same height as me so you're, you're a tall guy now um, and then you know you get married but then you have this other challenge I mean what were you thinking let's start with God first what, what were you thinking with God then when you get married um, and then you know you, you discover you've got this um, brain tumor tell us a bit about that 
I think certainly the 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 shock of the news. I, I mean, here's here's just shortly before that, I'm making vows of marriage of till death do we part, and facing news of that death could come way sooner than it ever anticipated, and so I think the 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 shock and awe of that component, the the realness and rawness of that vow coming possibly true so soon. Um, I don't think many of us who get married think about the vows to that degree. Um, honestly, I mean, I know we internalize them and we, many of us write them ourselves, but do we really reach that, that rawness of, Hey, this could happen relatively soon versus years down the line. And I think at that moment, I, I, of course I couldn't help, but, but wonder, okay, why God, um, I'm coming from a high of my life. I've, I've, I've met the woman of my dreams and, and just married her and we're just starting our life together. We, we've haven't really even had a honeymoon period, if you will. And facing that reality. So I think there was certainly question, but I'd honestly say is I don't think I would have made it through it without that faith. It was that faith. It was surrounding myself with people like my parents, my parents' network, my church. Um, everybody I knew, the, the, I mean, hundreds were praying. Um, there were people praying all over the world at, at, for this. And uh, during that time period from being diagnosed um, to a few months later, uh, saying that it needed to come out, it needed to go to surgery. Um, that was really what propelled me forward. I felt carried by those prayers in that time period as as we continued forward. Yeah, and I guess, um, maybe I'd like to touch on, Mike, if you don't mind telling a bit of a story as to how you discovered that you had um, a brain tumor. What, what did that journey look like? Sure. So I, a lot of it was, if I would describe myself at the time as super energetic, always uh, strung well, and, and really kind of, I'd sleep four or five hours a night, and that would be fine, and I'd go, 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 go. Um, I was into a lot of different things and said I was just motivated and, and was busy, busy, busy. But what happened is I basically, the, the onset was really fatigue. Um, I started going to needing eight hours of sleep and still feeling fatigued. Um, and that really is what led to blood tests that determined that, hey, there's, there's more things out of whack, um, which led to an MRI, which led to them identifying the, at the time, uh, the growth uh, that then ultimately determined as a tumor um, uh, once they were able to look at that all. And then diagnosed in that sense and saying that, hey, it's it, it basically is sizable enough. They thought I would have a visual impairment to some degree by that point based on its size, uh, but I did not, uh, praise God. But they did say that, hey, this could continue and could cause major impairment and so forth at that point. So it, it has to be removed. Wow. So, so at that point, then, so you know, they, they find the tumor. Um, they're clearly inferring, you know, surgery is is needed. I mean, they were, you know, it sounds like they were sort of shocked or surprised that you hadn't sort of started to lose your your sight. And uh, this is, um, you know, a few weeks now after you've got married. I mean, have we moved into a month by now, or is this still weeks after you've got married? Oh, so, so the surgery ended up. So, got married in July. Uh, diagnosed really in. Uh, starting in late August into September, and then surgery was in early December. Yeah, and so, you know, less than six months of sort of married life. I mean, as you are 
you know, you've had to elect, okay, you know, the, the surgery is the option that the specialists are telling me, uh, you know, married less than six months. Uh, you know, what was that six months like between you and your wife going into this? Because I know you told me that there was a real percentage, the doctor sent you that you might not wake up from this, from this surgery. So how did it change your relationship in those sort of six months so soon after marriage? I honestly feel like it was iron sharpens iron. I, I think we we were closer as a result. We were forced to go a lot more serious than jovial. Um, it wasn't just like, hey, let's set up house. It was, hey, this is life. This is what we're facing. We're in this together, and we will march towards it and through it together and, and in faith and in prayer and, and in belief that God will deliver on that surgery. But it was really interesting because the neurosurgeon at that point, I don't know, um, some may not get the reference, but I would get that many do. If you re recall the game operation with the little buzzer and so forth, yeah. um, many of us probably played that as, as kids, but the neurosurgeon, so here's top of his craft. He's describing this as, okay, uh, I don't want to scare you, but you have to sign off on this. Um, before going into the surgery. So he described it in the sense that if he hit the buzzer, I was either going to be blind because of the optic nerve is right there because the tumor was touching the optic nerve or he could nick the carotid artery, which feeds the, the blood to the brain and literally would bleed out in seconds. No and way, no way to stop that. As you're about to go, okay, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. That definitely, <laughs> it makes it real at that point, doesn't it? Like he's, oh, beyond. This is like operation here. If I hit the sides, you know, you're blind. If I do this, you could be dead. It's like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And he ended up being, uh, so ultimately it was, it was interesting because he ended up being, um, uh, one of only seven neurosurgeons in the world certified in that procedure um, that was necessary. And uh, God being the ultimate choreographer, interestingly enough, that surgeon had uh, practicing privileges 15 minutes from my house. So I didn't have to jump on a plane. I didn't have to fly to another state. I didn't have to um, uh, figure out uh, how that was all going to be handled. Literally, I happened to be 15 minutes away from one of seven in the world. And so God had his hand on even that from, from the beginning. Um, but that kind of that, yeah, it, it was, it was dramatic. And I think the, the, it really led to that point when the anesthesiologists were there and they're starting to basically uh, administer and, and put me under for the surgery. Um, it really was, it was a goodbye. I mean, I, I, I was forced to tell my wife goodbye because it was a very strong and real possibility that I wasn't waking up. And so regardless, we, we had no kids at the time. We had, we had nothing really beyond just the two of us. And that realness at that moment um, is that iron sharpens iron. That was, that was yeah. the hardest, I think the hardest moment of my life. Yeah. And I guess, you know, I mean, it's, um, again, I'm really, um, grateful that you know you came through that and again you've come through it as a stronger person but there must be something you know i mean you know the one from which is guaranteed is that you know we're all going to die we never know the moment all the time that is you know that is god's plan not ours but to be and you know i've had surgeries before for you know simple things that you know a snapped achilles tendon you've got to go under a knife and they're putting you out but i'm never going under thinking i'm not gonna not gonna wake up mm -hmm. i mean yeah everyone feel stressed differently everyone looks at life differently but at that moment you know when the 
you're about to go under. I mean, how do you how do you really process that? And and perhaps you don't. I mean, I know you said your goodbyes. I mean, were you just closing your eyes, just thinking, I really hope that I, I wake up? I mean, what does what does it feel like to to have that when the surgeons are saying there is a chance that you might not come back from this? Yeah, I, I think I mean there was even leading up to that, it was all the different things before even going into the hospital that day. It was uh, getting a glimpse of different things. I mean, I, I literally soaked in a lot of different experiences and, and views outside in the world, if you will, beforehand. And that last soaking in of that view was my wife staring into my wife's eyes as I basically fell under. Um, I, I think that's, that's really what it was. And I, I think it was more about the then and the now, and not as much as, as thinking about the, the what if, praying and believing in confidence that I would wake up, but also um, in faith, knowing that if I didn't, I knew where I was going. Yeah, and, and I want to give a little bit of a joke, and you led me into this, but it's, you know, in England, we normally say it's not rocket science, you know, and sometimes say it's, you give them a simple task, it's not brain surgery, just do it. But, you know, I guess you've been through the brain surgery, so I know you, you gave me that joke, so I wanted to, wanted to feed it in there to make it a bit sure. Lighter, but it is, you must have a smile when someone says, hey, come on, can you do this, Mike? It's not, it's not brain surgery, just get this done. I do chuckle every time. It's it is one of those weird things to be part of that club to be able to truly understand what brain surgery is, um, and to be out the other side. I I think uh, it's it, it's funny in that sense, but also in the way that uh, it opens the door to then share the testimony of how how God delivered in that surgery. Because even even in that walking out or essentially being rolled out and and I heard afterwards the neurosurgeon told my wife and and told my parents that during surgery that the optic nerve was not in sight and the carotid artery literally moved out of the way his words now anatomically and medically those things are not possible and based on how he described where the tumor was and it was touching the optic nerve that's just not possible in in this life Okay, without without God intervention. So I think God God had it happen and choreographed it in the right state at the right time where I could have a surgeon and not fly. He delivered it and 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 made that risk of that operation go down. He guided the surgeon's hand so that he could remove it fully. And then ultimately on the other end, uh, praise God, it ended up being benign and not cancerous. Um, so that pretty much short of retests and regrowth and checks for MRIs and so forth, um, that was the end of that journey, but God delivered. Yeah. I guess let's touch on your, your faith for uh, a minute. You know, when these two significant, um, events have happened in your life, um, there are those that either, you know, push their faith away or become challenged saying, you know, why me? And I know me and you were talking about this sort of offline a little bit earlier. I mean, were there any moments in your life when you were either angry, bitter or, or challenged by God saying, why are these very significant things keep happening to my life? I wouldn't necessarily classify as angry and bitter. I think questioning for sure. I think points where, yes, why God? Why me? Why now? Why this? Um, 
I think certainly came into play, but I think there was the, the ability to be surrounded with others that had stronger faith than even I did helped. And I think the, uh, the, those people lifting me up in prayer and lifting the situation up in prayer. And, and honestly, I think in those situations, having some sort of medical outcome to them, i.e., yeah, I may not get tall, but you may get tall. Or, yeah, you may not live, or you you will live and we'll get it removed and you'll likely be healthy on the other side. So they had some definitive outcomes, which, which was good there. Um, but I don't think it would be angry. I think definitely questioning. I think definitely uh, more in the sense of saying, I don't understand this right now. I don't understand why I'm in this season. Um, but I think uh, we certainly know the I can do all things through God. It, it strengthens me. And basically, things is not, it really translates to seasons in, in the older translation. And while I can't personally do all things, okay, as a physical human being, with God, I can do a season. So for me, I, I went through a season of growth hormone. I went through a season of struggle with facing the possibility of death early on in my marriage. But those were seasons and God delivered on the other side. Yeah, and I guess, um, you know, what I take from that is, you know, what, you, what you've learned from that is really that there's going to be struggles, there's going to be tribulations, you know, there's going to be trials, but it's how you cope with those and move move forward. I mean, like I said, you've had some very significant um, things and the fact you can even share and talk to me about those things today, I think that says an awful lot as to as to, to where you are. I mean, it's, it's not uncommon for, for someone, and that's why I use the words bitter and angry, it's not uncommon for people to say, you know, why me? Or, you know, why not that bad person who is stealing from the state and doing these other things? And, and I'm always fascinated and amazed when people aren't like that. They're very humbled, they're very grateful um, um, to, to be alive. So let's let's move into a little bit about um, more about your, your faith. Any interesting thing, I, I said this to you earlier, but um, you used to live in Massachusetts. There was yep. a church in um, Denver that was doing a, a multi-site church in Texas. And then that's what caused you to Texas. I was like, how on earth did all this happen, Mike? Did you end up down there? So, so maybe share with us the, the plan then as to how that developed, that you moved from one state from multi-church was in another state to, to then go down to Texas and sort of rebuild sure. your life down there. Well, it, certainly if, if you had asked me only weeks prior to um, God kind of starting us down that path, I would have bet my house against you for moving to Texas. Uh, it, I just didn't see myself moving more than an hour away from a coast. Uh, I had either spent that time as a child being close to Lake Michigan, and so that felt like an ocean as a child, of course, or being within an hour of the ocean out in Massachusetts. So I, 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 did, I couldn't have seen that coming, and it certainly was not in the plans. We were in the plans to sell our house and, and try to move into something a little larger, but we really had plans to kind of move down the road a little bit, if you will. Um, Massachusetts was still the plan, uh, either building or buying. Um, and that was really what we wanted to do. But uh, God used uh, YouTube, believe it or not, and, and and all of us in social media and and using that heavily today. Um, God used a, a YouTube video of the the Denver Church Red Rocks worship, basically their worship team, and put that in front of us. And it was the first time we'd ever heard them. Now. Th that's that's rare because my wife and I listen to a lot of different uh, praise and worship music 
pretty regularly and and she was playing the the playing this in the other room for the kids and on our uh, Apple TV and I was in the other room working from home and so normally she'd just hit click and skip the commercial um, but I picked up on the first few bars in the other room she picked up on while she was in the other room and didn't hit skip and I'm like what's that and she goes it's it's a group called Red Rocks Worship I said, okay, never heard of them. So I walked into the other room, decided to listen and watch for the seven minute song, which was their ad, and just felt stirred. It stirred in a, in a real way where God showed up in that moment, in that song, in that YouTube video, in an ad, no less, um, and and just felt stirred. And we, we, we kind of searched and saw, okay, they're in Denver, Colorado. Okay, that's probably why we haven't heard of them. Um, and, and that was part of, but they said, uh, basically then we saw coming 2019 Austin, it didn't say Austin, Texas. So we immediately thought, is there an Austin, Colorado? Because they're like, okay, they already have multiple campuses in the Denver area. So we figured for sure, it's just another campus out there, but something just resonated with us with, with Austin at that moment. And it's hard to explain other than a stirring, if you will. And we started really kind of praying about it and kind of saying, what is this God? And really just discerning. And over time, it became uh, numerous things where doors were closing and doors were opening. And it just made more and more sense kind of pointing on a, on a I almost like it, liken it to a runway where the, the plane's coming in for a one way and the, 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 the lights are, are flashing to show the pilot where to land that's kind of what I felt God did for, for a long period of time. And, and it just dumbfounded us for a while, but we, every time he did something else. And, and I mean, there's, there's at least 50 little things uh, that I could tick off um, throughout that time period. But we, we listed our house. Um, we got an interested buyer. We put a deposit down on a house in Texas and that was made possible because I worked for a company that happened to be based in Texas. And ultimately, I was able to be on a business trip, search for a house, put a deposit on it, all, all paid for during the company, company trip, basically. So I didn't have to spend any additional monies to, to go out of my way to search for a house um, and, and did that. But then kind of really went all in. So we were all in, said, okay, God, this is what you have for us. We're, we're listening. Um, we don't know how or why, or this feels really weird. But at the same point, we, we kind of decided that, hey, we're all in. Um, and what's interesting is that at that point is my company at the, that I was working for decided to put up some dollars to assist with the relocation. Oh, wow. Um, so... Yeah, out of the out of the blue, here's here's some money basically, and and let's help you move across the country. And so that helped obviously immensely to uh, listening. So it, it, it's it's easier to listen when some of the finances were were much oh, yeah. easier to uh, to stomach at that point. Um, but really, we were we we kind of had gotten to a point in that journey, and this is almost over the course of of six eight months as we're trying to sell our house. Um, and we reached a point where, um, we had kind of backed down to the lowest number with the, with the buyer. We had put, placed a deposit down here in Texas and we really, we got our inspection on our house and, and it came back to the buyer and the buyer comes back and wanted $9,000 and we were all in. We, we, had, we had 
spent every last piece. We had backed down to our, our last dollar that we had budgeted to still be able to get the house that we had put a deposit on. And so we're, we're, we're struggling through that weekend thinking we're, we're going to lose the house. So this is a moment of weakness, a moment of, of doubt, a moment of, of faith dropping to our feet, if you will, uh, and, and where we should have been dropping to our knees. And I think at that point is, is we did pray. But what was interesting is the message at Red Rocks that morning in Denver that we streamed was of Jesus in the boat during the storm when the disciples doubted Jesus and his capability and got scared. And later on that afternoon, after hearing that sermon and, and restoring our faith that, God, you can move and you can make this happen, because after all, this we're doing what you told us to do, God, so we need you to move in, in a big way here. We, we put $2,000 more into it, which was basically going to be our furniture fund. Yeah. It was going to be how we were going to get new furniture in the new house. And we said 2000 is all we is all we had left. And we thought it was going to fall apart still, but we're saying we're praying over it. Lord, bless this. And the buyer came back from the $9,000 demand and accepted the $2,000. And we marched towards closing on that house. Yeah, and the amazing thing about so I've got a lot, uh, you know, being English is certainly natural. I've got a lot of viewers in Europe that listen to this, and I want to get it into perspective that we're not just saying move sixty miles down the road here. You know, we're, we're talking about different states. What is the actual miles between your old house and where you live now? Do you know? I don't recall the exact. I want to say it's Talks it's over two thousand, but. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if, if you if you go from the southern point of England to to the northern, you, you're most probably in the sea by then, you know. So I mean, this is it is perspective. And I know that you know one of the things that we were spoken about was, uh, you know, that really sort of you had a stone to get you into security ministry. That there was, you know, you'd volunteered and you'd helped in other areas before, um, but you didn't really feel at home until you got in church security. So maybe just sort of finish up by telling us a little bit about the church safety guys and and what you guys guys do now. Sure. So I've got to give a free I, plug because I'm always on your podcast. So, you know, it's, it's only fair <laughs> if I give you the opportunity here. Appreciate that. Uh, well, I'd say, you know what, it, it's it, different things. I, I served, I was an elected official in my community. It allowed me to then get involved in emergency management um, initially as a representative. And then more actively, I, I became deputy director of our community emergency response team. It allowed me to work with teams of volunteers in preparedness and, and emergency response. Uh, I got to uh, fly the town's dr uh, drone uh, and so forth and, and do different things. But I, th I think that's where it got me into a lot of different trainings and, and preparedness uh, from a safety perspective. Um, it's how I got CPR certified. It's how I got AED and first aid and, and a lot of different trainings with the police and fire and EMS um, throughout that, even though I wasn't a sworn officer, even though I wasn't on the fire department, um, I was afforded the chance to be part of a lot of training that I otherwise wouldn't have, have had an opportunity to do so. And I think it, it really always struck me as the need for that in churches. And this was this was uh, more than 10 years ago um, at this point. But really, the 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 need that churches had to 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 protect the sheep, and I know that 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 metaphor is used a lot, uh, but at the same point of of saying there there needs to be protection, not just physically in a place of worship, but in the sense that even our right to worship itself and worship freely 
it needs to be protected. And I think there was always this inclination of saying, all right, uh, stand guard of uh, place watch and watchmen on the wall and being out there and saying, what can I do to help keep people uh, safe or what can I do to help prepare them? And so I was doing that in my community. And and so it made sense to also then bring that that those years of service in the church forward and combine all of that together in, in the safety ministry perspective. Um, so serving across a few different churches, uh, doing just that, and and now doing that for this church plant, Red Rocks Austin, um, as helping train their team, helping instill uh, what's necessary for procedure, helping uh, do risk assessments of a brand new building that we only got we only got two weeks in our new building before COVID hit, and wow. and then all of a sudden we're out. So there's still things I'm chomping at the bit to implement because of of plans in this new building, but. Really, just that sense of, of of service, but feeling like you know what, um, God really kind of said all along: here's the challenge, here's your ability to be resilient, here's how I can deliver. You're willing to listen, I'm willing to bless you, but I'm also going to equip you. And and I know many uh, we've heard in the, in the industry, and it and it said, I think Carl has said, and others, um, God equips the called. And I, I, I really feel that those opportunities, that training, the ability to be in those uh, teams in different churches and pre- preparing me for uh, serving in a church plant, for uh, serving in a safety ministry, was not just the emergency training. It was, it was the heart of worship. It was the heart of ministry. It was the heart of uh, prayer and faith in God and his ability to move because you know what, at the end of the day, we can train till we're blue in the face, but if God is not on our side, I don't want to be David against Goliath. Yeah, and actually it's an interesting point you say, but I think it's God doesn't call the equipped, he equips a called. And, you know, I do consulting with um, your house of worship on safety and security. And quite often I'll say, you know, you don't need a, a guy like me because when I walk away, you need the structure behind. And there's, there's a lot of people that have a lot of skills and experience, but, you know, safety and security in a church is just so different than, than in the other environment. You know, you need people like you that work in IT during the day to have the passion and the aptitude and God will give you those skills. So before we wrap up, wrap, wrap up, then Mike, give us a plug for the church safety guys. How can people find out more and listen to your, um, your Facebook live show? Sure. So we're a nonprofit dedicated to houses of worship and church safety and security. We have our largest group on Facebook. One of the largest on Facebook is church safety and security. I would say the largest. Yeah, you know what? I'm I'm a little bit humble there, but it's it's one of the largest anyway. But I think really focused on both at that sense. But you can go to churchsafetyguys.com and uh, certainly find out more about us. But the big thing that we do is a weekly broadcast on Sunday nights, where we're bringing in people like Simon and and experts and subject matter experts and and leaders in uh, the church security and safety world um, that share a little bit of insights on different topics, and we try to unpack that. That in a way that is a little bit more realistic. It's not just um, what my colleague Paul Buckner likes to say is not just tactical, it's practical. And, and we try to unpack things in a fun way. Um, and, and 
you've been on the show there, Simon, so you know kind of the, the style. We're, we don't take ourselves too seriously, but we do understand that, look, the, at the end of the day, church safety is first a ministry, and second, it's the ability to train, because we need to be able to reach people's hearts, not just be able to stop them if there's something physically involved. And while we'll continually train and we'll train and we'll train, we have to also make sure that our mind is prepared as well. So uh, Church Safety Guys has a couple of different uh, devotionals available on Amazon. Uh, you can also find them on our website, but it's specific to church safety teams, uh, fire, EMS, um, and police departments really as well could benefit from these devotionals. Um, but for me, I, I'm the newest of the three. I, I joined only this year, but again, really feel part of that calling that God kind of led me this direction and the ability to, again, continue give, to give back and to have an impact, not just on the church I'm immediately serving, but to help others across the country and the globe, really, for that matter. Um, we get reached out to all the time with questions, and I really... Uh, appreciate the opportunity to um, talk with people, to share our perspectives. Are we always 100% right? Absolutely not. We're learning every single day. And we've experienced a lot, but there's more that we haven't experienced. But at the end of the day, we're we're willing to help and we're willing to, to, to get people pointed in the right direction um, and in hopes that uh, churches across the country will uh, embrace the idea of church safety, even if they don't go full-fledged security and, and the whole armed thing, that's fine. It's about safety first. It's about that ministry-minded first. And so I'm, I'm, I'm very blessed to be part of the church safety guys. I might that was a, a good plug and a long plug and I tell you oh, I've got to know you so much better because normally when I come on that show all the talk it is done by James and Paul so <laughs> this interview has really allowed me to get to know you better so it's been uh, an honor and a privilege to to hear your journey and allow you to share um, your journey so you know I'd encourage the listeners to go and check out the church safety guys on on Facebook and then your Sunday night live show and I just want to remind people for those that listen to to the podcast uh, you can get us on, on Apple um, Spotify, all the big platforms. And if you want to see the video interview of uh, me and Mike, you can see that on the YouTube channel at Simon Osimo or on the, the, the Facebook page who I became. So Mike Scully of the Church Safety Guys, I've now interviewed all of you until you get any new members. Uh, it's been an honor and a privilege. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, sir. Thank you for joining us for the Who I Became podcast. If you are enjoying the discussions between Simon and his guests, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review, as well as share with your friends on social media. Once again, thank you for joining the Who I Became podcast.